This is the L3 Leadership Podcast, episode number 131. What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode number 131 of the L3 Leadership Podcast. My name is Doug Smith, and I'm the founder of L3 Leadership. We're a leadership development company devoted to helping you become the best leader that you can be. This episode is going to be fantastic. You're going to get to hear our talk from one of our leadership breakfasts, and the speaker was Ed Greffenstedt, who is the CEO and CIO of the Dietrich Foundation, and his talk was entitled Big and Small Leadership, and it was fantastic. And the question and answer session, uh, which will be in the next episode, was just as valuable. And so I really know you're going to enjoy this. But before we talk, jump into Ed's talk, I just want to say if you're new to the podcast, we are committed to bring you three or four new episodes every single month um, to add value to your life. And if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, we would really appreciate if you would hop on iTunes or whatever it is you listen to a podcast with and subscribe and leave a rating and review. It really does help us grow our audience. So we appreciate that. And I want to thank our sponsors, Bab Inc. They're an insurance broker, third-party administrator and consulting firm based out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and they host our monthly leadership events and have a huge passion for developing next generation leaders. But they also do some really unique stuff with companies. If you want to check out what they do, uh, just go to their website at babbins.com. That's B-A-B-B-I-N-S.com. Again, that's B-A-B-B-I-N-S.com. With that being said, I just want to get, jump right into Ed's talk. Uh, I'm not going to read you all of Ed's bio, but it's incredibly impressive. He's the trustee of the Dietrich Foundation, as well as its president, chief executive officer, and chief investment officer. He is a trustee and director um, at Carnegie Mellon University, the University of Pittsburgh, the Hillman Company, the Hillman Family Foundations, and he's also a member of the investment committees of the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, Carnegie Mellon, and the University of Pittsburgh uh, Ed is extremely brilliant and extremely bright, and I really know that his talk's going to add a ton of value. So let's jump right into that, and I'll be back at the end with a few announcements. Well, good morning, everybody. Can you hear me all right? Okay, I'm all wired up. I'm pretty sure uh, Bill Belichick is listening to every <laughs> everything we're talking about today, so we'll have to deal with that. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. I want to start by thanking, uh, thanking Doug and, and L3 and certainly thanking uh, Russell and Bab for sponsoring these talks. It's a remarkable thing that, that Doug and, uh, and L3 are doing, and uh, I support it 100%. Looking out and chatting with some of you beforehand, it appears that uh, everyone here speaks English, which is a, which is a great uh, start for me. I do a lot of speaking in Asia and uh, for my job. <clears throat> and uh, last year, I was giving a keynote at an investment conference about a couple hundred investment professionals, half of them were Chinese. And they had the headsets on, listening to a real-time translation. And I was a little nervous. It was a big talk, and I'd prepared a lot. And after it was over, <clears throat> a young Chinese woman ran up to me, and I was thinking, oh, maybe I'm going to get a nice compliment on my presentation. And she said, I heard your whole talk. It was, it was superfluous. <laughs> and I said, thank you. And she said, will you share your slides? And I said, yes, I will, posthumously. <laughs> and she said, oh, I can't wait. So uh, I thought that was a lesson about language. Uh, but today I'm going to share some thoughts on leadership. Uh, I hope you'll find them thought-provoking and useful and not superfluous. Um, but I'm going to start with a brief overview of the Dietrich Foundation, just to give you a little context uh, for my remarks uh, so the Dietrich Foundation, based here, was started uh, by the uh, charitable vision of Bill Dietrich, 
he graduated, he grew up north of the city in, in Greenville and Conneaut Lake, found his way to Princeton, uh, ended up joining his father at Dietrich Industries uh, in the mid-60s, and grew it dramatically, and decided to sell it in 1996 for $170 million cash. So in 1996, he was divorced in his 50s, sitting on $170 million. I personally could have imagined several ways to spend the money, but he decided he wanted to give it all away. And the tradition of Andrew Carnegie and so many other great philanthropists that have blessed Western Pennsylvania. So he put it all into a charitable trust, and he said, I'm going to dedicate the rest of my life to growing this corpus as large as possible. And then when I die, this pool of assets will fund the Dietrich Foundation, and the Dietrich Foundation will live on in perpetuity, giving away money each year, mainly in Western Pennsylvania, mainly to support higher education. Uh, he hired me uh, from Carnegie Mellon in 2010, uh, the next uh, year he shared with me he was battling cancer, and he lost his battle in October of 2011 at the age of 73, far too young. Pursuant to his wishes, immediately after his death, we began the process of moving these assets and funding the Dietrich Foundation, which we did. At that time, the assets had grown to $550 million. Today, we've grown the assets through organic investment to $780 million dollars. Uh, this net of having given away $74 million so far. In May, when we make our next distribution, we will have given away almost $100 million. We have a wonderful board of nine trustees that includes the presidents of Carnegie Mellon, Chancellor of Pitt, the chairman of the Hillman Company, chairman of UPMC, the former chairman of PNC Bank, the former chairman of U.S. Steel. So I share that with you because this is one of the things I am so grateful for, is to work alongside remarkable, remarkable people, remarkable leaders. And we'll touch on this a little bit later, but I think the greatest thing that you can do as young uh, people on the ascent in your career is try to find opportunities to serve on boards. It's a great opportunity to uh, see other leaders in action. And just to round out the story on the Dietrich Foundation, Bill was a very precise guy. He wanted to control the foundation from the grave, as he liked to say. So he gave us very specific instructions of who we support and how we support them. So we have 15 nonprofits that we are mandated to support in perpetuity. 90% of them go to the six universities on the left. The only beneficiary outside of Western PA is Princeton University, where Bill did his undergraduate work. The rest of it stays right here, supporting the United Way, uh, the Symphony, the Carnegie Museum, the Heinz History Center, all good stuff, all really good stuff. So the money stays right in the backyard. So my background, uh, far less interesting than Bill's. Um, Doug touched a little bit upon it. Law degree, practiced law for five years, MBA from Carnegie Mellon, went into investment banking, ultimately started my own private equity fund, and that's how I met Bill Dietrich in 1999. Ultimately, Carnegie Mellon University hired me in 2007 as CIO and treasurer of the university. And uh, Bill was chairman of the investment committee at Carnegie Mellon at the time, so we worked very, very closely together. And a fateful lunch, he uh, made me an offer I couldn't refuse in 2010. And uh, he said, Ed, I've been secretly interviewing you for 11 years, and I've decided you're the guy. So I, I left CMU to join uh, Bill and I only wish um, I'd had more time to work with them. 
But as I said, he lost his battle with cancer in 2011. So that's a little context uh, for my remarks today. Uh, so leadership, uh, a big, big topic. I know you all, many of you tackle it uh, frequently through this great organization. But for me, it was, uh, it was daunting to sit down when Doug made the kind offer to come and speak. And I, I really sat back and I thought first about what leadership could possibly, uh, how we could possibly articulate and share some insights today. And I ultimately came across, as you would expect, uh, when you're t- thinking about leadership, you come across the great names. You think about the great people, uh, big, historic, almost heroic figures, uh, when you think about leadership sometimes. Uh, remarkable people who have done remarkable things, usually in the face of enormous difficulties. They led movements. They transformed lives, sometimes liberated societies. They invented industries, disrupted industries. They affected massive and real change in the lives of millions, and they inspired millions more. There's countless books and movies made about people like this. This is what I call big leadership. Now, how many of you in the room, raise your hands, are comfortable describing yourself as a leader? Good. That's great to see. Because I think sometimes, as wonderful and as laudable as these leaders are and how much we should admire them is is completely legitimate, sometimes I think when we think too much about big leadership, we tend to think it's, it's beyond us. We tend to think that somehow it's bigger than us, that somehow we don't measure up, that somehow it suggests a level of arrogance or conceit if I call myself a leader, because a lot of people think I'm not in that category. And I think that's false. I think that leads us to overlook the leadership we can lead, the leadership we can demonstrate day in and day out. So that's what I call small leadership. It's not insignificant leadership. It's just different. Everyone you touch as a leader is going to affect their lives in immeasurable ways. So it's not that you're less important. It's just a different type of leadership. But don't let this big leadership distract you from your opportunity. This fellow on the left, your left, is Adam Reed. Has anyone uh, heard of this fellow before? So he's coming off the field. This is 2015. He's a senior in high school. He's uh, playing ball at American Heritage High School in Plantation, Florida. He's four foot five, 96 pounds. And this team, by the way, back-to-back 5A state champions. Okay? He's not a starter. He's a backup running back. Now, his... Body doesn't process growth hormones normally. Doctors don't know why. But he uh, loves the game of football. And there was an ESPN piece about this, this fella. And the coaches talked about his work ethic, about his leadership. In the weight room, when they asked him to do 10 reps, he did 12. When the coaches talked to him about how to run a play, they knew they only had to tell him once. They talked about his heart. They talked about his commitment, talked about how they, the coaches 
respected him and how he earned the respect of all of his teammates, how he went about his business every day, day in and day out. When asked about his playing time, which was minimal, he always shrugged and he said, I want to play a role on a championship team, whatever that role is. When they asked him about his size, he said, I'm not short, I'm small. That's small leadership. So I'm going to talk a little bit today about big leadership because there's overlap in the big leadership and small leadership we're talking about. But I want to focus mainly on small leadership and, and give you some practical observations that I hope are useful. But first, let's talk about big leadership. So there are some hallmarks of, uh, of big leadership. And again, I think these apply to those remarkable people we saw in the first slide. They articulate a vision and a, a set of values, and they do it with passion. They inspire excellence in others, and they really see and embrace change. Um, one element of, of big leadership that I want to touch on before we get to small leadership uh, is, the, is the issue of, of trust and cooperation that is embedded in the organizations led by some of these big leaders. And let me start with a, a brief story. Part of the great uh, aspect of my job, I think, is when I travel, and I travel, I'm 100 days on the road and meeting with our investment managers around the world, and often we have annual meetings with these managers where the night prior they invite incredible speakers from a broad range of, of backgrounds. And twice I've had the pleasure to hear a Congressional Medal of Honor recipient speak. Now, there are only 76 living uh, recipients of the Congressional Medal of Honor. And it really inspired me to read more about these incredible heroic people in our military. And what strikes me, what struck me most when I started to read more about Congressional Medal of Honor recipients is all they want to talk about are the other people they served with. All they want to talk about is how what they did, which you and I would consider to be almost superhuman, they would say with consistency, my colleagues, my, my army mate would have done the same thing for me. Right? It was trust. It was cooperation. And as I read these things, I was inspired. I say, what draws these type of people to the military? Are they, just, are they just that extraordinary? And why don't we see more people like this today when, in our organizations? And you see that it really does come back to trust and cooperation. Now, the, the trust and cooperation is a feeling. And it's, and it's hard to dictate trust and cooperation. You as a leader, you as a boss, can't say to your team, I want you to trust each other. You can't say, I want you to cooperate. Right? You have to create an environment for that. And there's a, um, there's a speaker, a writer, Simon Sinek, who wrote about this concept of creating a circle of safety in which these feelings can really prosper. And if you'll bear with me, if you go back to the Paleolithic age, 50,000 years ago, maybe this is where it started, early man. See, back then the world was full of danger, right? All kinds of things out there trying to kill you. There's weather, 
a lack of resources, saber-toothed tiger. There was all kinds of stuff coming at you. And sometime, over a period of time, humans evolved into social animals. And we began to create what Simon Sinek referred to as a circle of, of safety. And the natural reaction from the circle of safety was a sense of being part of a tribe, being together, feeling belong, like you belong. And when that happened, the natural reaction was to trust and cooperation, right? You could trust the other folks in your circle of safety, in your tribe, to watch for predators while you slept. You could trust that if you were out searching for the meal, your tribesmen were back preparing the fire. That is where the circle of trust concept comes. And in the modern world, this is no different. If you're in an organization, there's all kinds of threats, maybe not mortal threats, but maybe mortal to your business. Right? There's threats from technology and unexpected competitors. All sorts of things come upon, come upon your organization. And the big leaders have figured out a way to create that trust and cooperation internally to have people work together, and when that trust and cooperation exists, then you don't have to worry walking in the office every day, am I under threat from the outside? Am I under threat from a colleague? Right? You can work to your fullest, you cooperate, and remarkable things can happen. One small example of what we've tried to do at the Dietrich Foundation to create that is uh, how we go about uh, research for our investment themes. So our, my principal job is to invest these funds and grow the funds so we have more to give away each year. And as if any of you are in the investment field, you know that uh, conventional wisdom is usually the default. So when someone, people ask you, what are you investing in? You usually think, well, what's everyone else investing in? And that prevents you from really exceptional performance. So once every quarter, I have a day set aside for my investment team to come together, and I call it the Hated Themes Day. And I ask each of the folks in our investment team to come prepared with a single piece of paper and make the best argument for us to invest in a theme that is universally despised, right? Something that would make any other institutional investor laugh out loud. And we have fun with it. And what I discovered was it created a bit of a circle of safety because it, it really liberated my team to go out and think about the most out. They had to support it. They had to make the argument for it. But it liberated them to think outside the box and think about unbelievable ideas that most people would laugh. In fact, I tell them your objective should be when you first articulate the theme, you should get at least a, a chuckle out of someone in the room. And we have fun with it, and it really does help them feel safe to explore, to research, to think uh, how others don't think. So that's one small example of creating a circle of safety. You might think of other examples uh, in your organization. But I wanted to get back from the big to the small, because I think it probably has more application uh, to the folks in this room. So small leadership has overlap with the big leadership, but as I thought about the hallmarks, I think the most important thing 
first and foremost, you got to deliver. Whatever you're asked to do, whatever your responsibilities are, this is obvious, right? You got to deliver the goods. Two, keep your head about you, stay out of politics. Gossip, politics in the office gets you nowhere. All it does is it erodes on that circle of safety, right? Don't lose your head. Keep your wits about you. These are big, high-level concepts, but I think they're elemental to, to leadership. But I wanted to move from that into some specifics because my sense is you've had wonderful speakers, better speakers than I, come and talk about leadership, and I thought maybe some specific examples would be the most actionable and helpful as you think about uh, your own careers. And and let me pause because, again, just surveying the room with the exception of Russell, everyone appears very young, and everyone... (laughs) Everyone appears to be, my guess is, you're on a certain trajectory in in your careers. And um, you might think, you might have some self-doubt and think, well, I hear what you're saying, Ed, about uh, leadership. I hear what you're saying. But given my youthfulness and my tenure in my organization, maybe this really isn't for me. And again, I think that's, that's a false premise. In fact, I would argue the other way, that your youth... Your short tenure can be an asset, is likely an asset. As young professionals uh, coming into an organization, you're likely bringing in a level of energy, exuberance, uh, fresh education and knowledge, uh, especially about new technologies. Uh, And that fresh perspective can be powerful to challenge old ways of doing things and to suggest uh, better ways of doing things. So consider it an asset, not a liability. But let's talk about some specifics. First, I think it's essential you prioritize. Now, what does that mean? That means no matter what you do, well, first of all, let's acknowledge none of us has unlimited time. Uh, That's probably the, uh, the greatest constraint you have. So you have to step back as a young professional, as a leader, and say, what's most important to the organization? What's most important to the business? What's most important to my teammates? Do as much of this on your own as you can. But it may make sense to be assertive and step into your boss's office and say to him and her every quarter or once a year, whatever is appropriate, here are my priorities for the next quarter. Here are my priorities for the next year. What do you think? That's a, that's a conversation that any boss would be thrilled to have, right? But get it on paper, get it going, and uh, start the conversation. Now, I've been asked, how about the reality, Ed, when uh, the boss comes in and says, I know you're working on this, and they're all top priority, but I want you to work on this now. That happens a lot, right? So in that case, I think, again, my advice to young leaders, professionals would be take a deep breath, collect yourself, sit down with your boss, your colleague leading the project, and say, listen, I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying. I'm eager to start this. 
right now I'm prioritizing uh, YX, WX and Y on my priority list. And now we're adding Z, right? And I want Z to be successful. But let's work together to reprioritize my, my projects. How should we rank these? This is all about communication, but prioritization is, is exactly at the heart of it. Second thing I think uh, leadership entails is being stoic. That's a word you don't hear enough anymore, I think. But avoid complaining about obstacles, workloads, resources. And when you're discussing resources with your boss or others, always come prepared with a list of solutions. I don't know if anyone's seen the movie uh, Apollo 13. This is one of my favorite scenes, right? This is Mission Control. They've just had an explosion on the capsule, and the uh, air filtration system is in jeopardy of failing. And this is Mission Control dumping all the parts that the astronauts have up above on the table, and they got to figure out an answer, right? No one was complaining. They rolled up their sleeve. They dug in. And in this, in this case, I think constraints led to brilliance. Next is be entrepreneurial. So this is Steve Jobs. And uh, I don't know if we can click on... Um, this is a, about a 70-second piece. And Steve Jobs was asked how he got to do so many amazing things when he was young. And this was his... Uh, 80-second response. I've actually always found something to be very true, which is uh, most people don't get those experiences because they've never asked. Uh, I've never found anybody who didn't want to help me if I asked them for help. I called up uh, this old Dave, but I called up Bill Hewlett when I was 12 years old, and he lived in Palo Alto's number so long. And he answered the phone himself. Yes, hi, I'm Steve Jobs. I'm 12 years old. I, I'm a student in high school, and I went to the frequency counter, and I was wondering if you had any spare parts I could have. And he laughed, and he gave me spare parts to go to the frequency counter, and he gave me a job that summer. He was at it, working on the assembly line, putting nuts and bolts together on frequency counters to get a job in the place to go. And I was in heaven. And I've never found anyone who said no or hung up the phone. I just asked. And when people ask me, I try to be as responsive and pay that 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 gratitude back. Um, most people never pay up a phone call, most people never ask, and that's what separates sometimes people who do this from people that just dream about. You gotta you gotta act and you've gotta be uh, willing to uh, fail. You gotta be willing to crash and burn. You know, the people on the phone will start you kind of whatever. If you're afraid of failing, so I thought that was a really cool clip for two reasons. First, Steve Jobs is synonymous with leadership, but that was as much about him as it was about Hewlett, <laughs> because Hewlett took the call, right? And that was small leadership. 12-year-olds interested in what I'm doing, pulled him in. You know, remarkable motivation, remarkable uh, inspiration for Steve Jobs. Uh, but it's really also about entrepreneurship, willingness to go out and make things happen instead of waiting for things to happen. 
focus on what can be done. So I graduated from CMU, so I had to have a two-by-two matrix in here somewhere. (laughs) So you have ambitious on one axis, achievable on the other. Top left, ambitious but not achievable when donkeys fly. All right, we've all known people who have said, oh, I'm going to propose an idea that's going to be big. And we know it's just impossible. But if you want to find the intersection of ambitious and achievable, that's, that's where I think greatness resides. Uh, if it's achievable and not so ambitious, heck, you should be doing that anyway. <laughs> so think about, uh, think about this matrix a little bit. Shouldn't dilute your, your boldness but it should make you think about what's really achievable. Next, commit the quality. Um, I have have a real um, sense that sometimes commitment to quality has, maybe every generation says this, but I have a a feeling that it has diluted a little bit over time. Um, We had a posting at uh, Carnegie, at uh, the Dietrich Foundation for a job two years ago. And we very clearly laid out the parameters, what we were looking for, and in bold at the bottom, we said, please submit resume and cover letter to the following. Right? We received 750 resumes. Only 250 submitted cover letters. Wow. Yeah, I said the same thing. And, and my team said, well, what should we do with the, the folks that didn't submit a cover letter? And I said, well, there's the trash can. <laughs> I said, you know, the attention to detail, the commitment to quality, to me was evidenced by the fact that they didn't follow the simplest of requests. Um, but it goes beyond that, of course. Everything you generate. When I first started my legal career, uh, I prepared a, a brief and I submitted it to the, uh, to the senior partner, and he caught uh, a typo, and he caught another error. And he sat me down, and he wasn't mean about it. He just said, listen, every product that comes from your name is your resume. Every product that comes under your name is a statement about who you are and what you stand for in terms of commitment to quality. And this is a document that's going to survive. And you don't want anyone picking it up and saying, this is Ed Greffin's desk commitment to quality. I think that's really, really important. So think about when you're generating a product, when you're generating a presentation, think about that as your calling card. This is evidence of your commitment to quality. It doesn't take uh, as much time as you would think to go through and proof something if you need to bring in someone else to help you do it. Packaging matters. We know that by walking down the aisles of Giant Eagle. Packaging matters. Presentation and quality absolutely matters. Be accountable. Uh, I love Dilbert. So the failure of my project can only be blamed on... The guy walks out of the room. That guy. Um, don't, Don't be that guy. Um, take advantage of opportunity to, I played some basketball, jump on loose balls. Jump on loose balls. When there's something that went wrong, 
don't waste a moment talking about who's responsible. Jump up and jump on it, right? Figure out ways to fix problems. Make it a relentless pursuit of, of solutions. I think that's really, really important. Um, again, we tr- leadership is a huge topic. I tried to uh, uh, summarize some of the, the big and the small, um, and, I, and I hope I at least in, uh, instilled in you some, some ideas for reflection on your own careers, what you're trying to do. Um, I do hope that there is a Jack Welsh in the room or a Nelson Mandela. Uh, it's probably a low probability, but I hope it's the case. But I think we can all say, based on my definition of small leadership, there's a 100% probability everyone in this room can impact uh, the lives of your colleagues and take your own career on a trajectory that will make you uh, a success. Um, but I'll go back to Adam Reed. What I just love about this story is this guy just showed up to work every day, did what he had to do, knocked it out, gave support to his teammates when he needed, they needed it. And I think, you know, we can all say this isn't a big leader, right? But the cool thing is when he was asked about his success, Adam said, I don't know, maybe attitude is more important than altitude. So I thought that was pretty cool. Well, that concludes my remarks. Thanks so much. Thank you guys so much for listening to Ed's talk on big and small leadership. We hope it added value to your life. And you can find ways to connect with Ed at l3leadership.org forward slash episode 131 in the show notes. And we have his bio and a lot of extra resources there as well. And again, if you listen, if you liked Ed's talk, you can also listen to our question and answer session from the event at l3leadership.org forward slash episode 132. If you want to stay up to date with everything that we're doing at L3 Leadership, you can sign up for our email list at our website at l3leadership.org, and you'll also get a free copy of my ebook, Making the Most of Mentoring. And again, if you have been encouraged by this podcast, we would really appreciate it if you would subscribe and leave a rating and review. It really does help us grow our audience organically. With that being said, I just want to close with a quote, and uh, I quote Gerald Brooks all the time because he always says incredible things, and he said this. He said, if you cannot serve in the shade then you'll never be able to serve in the limelight. And I just want to encourage you to serve every day of your life. It's one of the greatest things that you can do to grow. Thanks for listening and being a part of L3 Leadership. Laura and I appreciate you so much, and we'll talk to you next episode. (music) 